Welcome to Two Girls in a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I always want to be on vacation. And I'm Jules, and I'm always happy to come back to San Diego from a vacation. Epic eye roll. <laughs> Listen, when you've lived in places that are cold and miserable in the winter, you're pretty happy to be coming back to San Diego from a tropical vacation in the winter because you're coming back to another tropical vacation destination. Fair. I mean, this is completely my, like, native Californian privilege talking, but I'm fine with that. It is. So, to kick us off, let's start with our reoccurring segment, Cheers and Jeers. Cheers and Jeers! Jules, where are you cheersing and jeersing? Uh, today I'm cheersing to my 17-year-old dog tur Kuka. Dog, dog, people, not daughter. Uh, she's still a little badass, and she is my ultimate sidekick, and I love her so much. My dog Dobie loves her, too. Dobie does love Kuka, and Kuka is real, like, she likes to play real hard to get with him. <laughs> she doesn't love him. It's fine. She doesn't. Listen, here's the thing. If Kuka does not like you, she's going to let you know, like, by fighting you. Fair. So the fact that she has not fought Dobie and she hasn't even snarled at him is a good sign for him. So he likes the older ladies. He does. <laughs> and what are you jeersing? I'm just generally jeersing to the United States of America. There's, there's just a lot of things happening these days that are extremely disappointing. And I'm sure that by the time this episode airs, there's going to be a whole, a whole another list of things that are going to be disappointing about just, just how we're not... How we're not moving forward. Just in time for Fourth of July. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah, America! <laughs> How about you, Drea? What are you cheersing? Bring us, bring us back to the positive. I, in the spirit of travel, I am cheersing the road trip. Uh, but in reality, it's probably because I honestly can't deal with anything more complicated than that at this point. Between the clusterfuck that is air travel. Oh, yeah. The clusterfuck that is luggage, the clusterfuck that is people, like... The general fucking public. Yeah, Yeah. just just put me in a car with my dog. Maybe my husband can come. And her parents, they just got back from a little road trip. We did just get back from a little Father's Day road trip. Yeah, so that's fun. What are you jeersing? Again, in the spirit of travel, I'm jeersing air travel. The fuck is even going on? And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's... All the things. Like, why even bother at this point? It's, it is it is insane out there. The friendly skies are not so friendly. <laughs> I am trying to book a trip for October, and I am holding out until I can get a direct flight to my destination. Because Always otherwise, direct. it's going to be a shit show and a half. Absolutely. So, yeah. Air travel, not cheers. so fun. Road trips, always super cheers. fun. So, cheers and cheers. week's Shawinigans, Shawinigans, we thought it'd be really fun to go through our list of do's and don'ts for travel. Since it is summer and people are starting to hit the road and hit the non-friendly skies, uh, we are going to walk you through our list. And we shortened it down. This could go on and on forever, as you know with us. But We have a we, lot of rules. We have a lot of rules. So we're going to go through our do's and don'ts. So my first do is to pack an extra pair of underwear in your carry-on. And also, learn from experience this past summer, or spring in April when we went to Scotland, 
Also pack your fucking toothbrush in your carry-on. I left the toothbrush in charge, like, I left Rob in charge of the toothbrush, and the toothbrush did not make it into the carry-on. It was in the packed bag that did not get on the plane, so we had to buy toothbrushes, and that really sucked. So anyway, do pack underwear and your toothbrush in your carry-on. Don't pack stinky food like a tuna or an egg salad sandwich. Just don't. I don't think I need to say anything else about that one. You don't. Drea, you... Go. Uh, my first do is very similar to yours. <laughs> do pack a change of clothes in your carry-on. Don't get stuck in Philadelphia having to buy men's underwear at a fucking gap <laughs> in the international terminal like this dumb bitch did. Let me tell you, though. No. I have bought some really good things at that specific gap in Philadelphia Airport on, like, really good sales. Okay, but why? Why Because I had time to kill when I was in the airport, and I was like, oh, let me just peruse the gap. And I'm like, they have a really good fucking sale rack. No, but why would the gap have men's underwear and not women's underwear? Men don't care about that shit. They're like, I forgot my underwear. I forgot my fucking underwear. underwear for yourself. The yeah. men's underwear, not yeah. for your husband. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's 100 because I got trapped <laughs> there on a flood, misconnection back from Puerto Rico. And now here's this hoe at the desk with, like, the 15-year-old who works there. And is like, here's this package. Here's this package. Can you open them so I can oh. see them? And the girl's like, well, the size is right here. And I'm like, yeah. But I don't normally. I'm buying it for myself. So yeah. I don't wear boxer briefs. I don't normally wear men's <laughs> fucking tidy whities <laughs> So I need to see if they will physically fit the circumference of my ass. Don't do it. Pack extras. I'm dying. Pack extras. All right. So do pack extras. Don't, however, overpack. As a reformed overpacker, I'm very proud of how far I've come. Making this adjustment has made such a huge difference in how I travel. I pack neutrals, I pack basics, and I have plenty of room left over to bring back all the shit that I want. Good tip. Do bring layers. Excellent idea. Specifically for the flight, because as you know, the plane can be really hot when it's sitting on the tarmac if you're in a hot climate, and then once you get up to that 30,000, 40,000 feet in the air and that air conditioning kicks on, you are going to be freezing. So I'm a big proponent of starting with a tank top and then layering on top of that and then having like a big sort of like one of those blanket scarf things that you can either wear as a blanket, you can fold it up like a pillow. So there's all these different options. So layers is essential. And also layers are really great if you end up having any kind of delay or you get caught without your bag because those layers can then become different outfits. With the underwear you have in your bag. With a pair of clean underwear, correct. Don't, under any circumstances, walk into an airplane bathroom in your socks or, God forbid, barefoot. It's disgusting, it is unsanitary, and I just can't believe that Anybody does this, but on every international flight, it's always an international flight. There's always someone that walks into that bathroom and they're in there in their socks. And I'm thinking, you know, that's not water on the floor, right? That is urine. That is shit that came out of someone's dick that's all over the floor. 
And maybe it may be more than urine. I don't know what people are doing in those little toilets. I don't want to know. I'm just saying, <laughs> do not, do not not wear your shoes in an airplane bathroom. It's really for your own health and safety. And for my sanity. Because <laughs> I cannot handle it. All right. So to lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. Do pack some wineskins. This is Drea Traveling 101. Uh, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, wine skins are exactly what they sound like. They're these little wine-shaped bubble wrap package things that you can use to protect your wine when you're coming home. I use them. I think I mentioned them in the last episode, too, about having wine skins in your bag always to be able to either transport wine to destination or transport wine from the destination. Yeah, because you never want to be without wine. No, this is never. <laughs> this is one thing we do. I have used them two ways as well. And if you're going to smuggle a shit ton of wine to or fro, like I often do, just make sure that your precious contraband is protected. And take it from someone who knows, my record is 12 bottles in a suitcase. Oh, and no clothing. (laughs) No, there there was some clothing. There was some clothing, but it was mostly the bottles. (laughs) Don't forget to pack local snacks for the plane. This is a tradition that I always do to extend my vacation as much as humanly possible. It is way better than plain food, and I hold on to just a little bit of that place while I'm en route. So I'm someone who really experiences travel through the senses, and that for me is food and drink. And the more I can hold on to that, like you are going to see me coming back from Spain every time. Just downing a bocadillo de jamón. So, fair, yeah. Or pan con tomate or... Uh, some combination thereof. Something. I love that idea. I usually buy snacks to take on the plane. Snacks on a plane is what I like <laughs> to call it. Um, but I've never really thought about it from the context of you're bringing part of that culture, that food back with you. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to incorporate that on my next trip, which is going to be who the fuck knows. So, Jules's next tip. Do learn a handful of phrases in the local language of the place that you're going to go. And don't be a basic bitch and learn things like, Donde está el baño? And, Una más cerveza, por favor. Like, learn how to say hello, how to say goodbye, how to say thank you, and most importantly, how to say, how do I find X, Y, or Z place? Or... Um, I don't speak your language fluently. Can you help me in English, perhaps? It's yeah. one of my pet peeves is when people travel and they haven't made any effort to learn just just the most basic greetings or phrases that could really go a long way to sort of ingratiating themselves with the locals wherever they are. Well, and even the attempt, I think, to your point, yes. right, is... I've seen people who won't even try. Mm -hmm. It's beyond them to even put in the effort to try. And just the act of trying to engage with someone, I I think, on their playing field is so... In their country. Let's let's just Mm -hmm. be clear about this. Like, you are in their country and you're expecting them to know your language. And that is one of the most obnoxious things I've ever witnessed. My favorite is just people on the street, Why aren't these street signs in English? Because you're in France, motherfucker. (laughs) So, yeah, learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. Get some Duolingo. 
All right, so don't, and this kind of goes along with this, the do theme, do not under any circumstances talk more loudly at someone in hopes that this will make them miraculously <laughs> understand the English language. I have firsthand seen this while backpacking through Italy on a train where this young American man, of course it was a man. Of course it was an American. Asked a, the train conductor about something. And the train conductor basically was like, I don't speak English. And this young man proceeded to yell very slowly at the conductor in hopes that maybe he would all be, like, understand. And I remember sticking my head out the window and being like, he's not going to understand you. Maybe you should have learned a little bit of Italian before you embarked on this train ride. I don't even talk like that to my dog. Like, what the just fuck? Stupid. It's, it's just so ignorant and stupid. And I appreciate on one hand that you're out there traveling, but I really don't appreciate on the other hand that you have made zero effort to understand what that traveling means and what it might entail in terms of your communication style with other people. See, and that's not real traveling to me because you want all the convenience and, and, tradition of home but just somewhere else that like you want that go to fucking epcot yeah do you know what i mean disney yeah fuck it go be a disney world person it's fine go for it there's a place for that okay so we're not in that place but (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) so final do's and don'ts and this kind of goes with my uh whole philosophy here is do be open to possibility i always try not to have too much of an agenda when i travel in fact I maybe make a hotel reservation. I maybe make dinner reservations if there's somewhere I really want to eat. Maybe. But I'm really there to experience the place in kind of that space and that time. Go on a walk. Drink with a local. Get lost. Spend the day reading at a cafe. Get on a train. You know, one of my favorite things about travel is that it opens up possibility in a way that is refreshing and thrilling and honestly to Jules's point earlier should be hard and should be challenging and should Mm -hmm. kind of make you bend your perception and be uncomfortable and that's where all the good stuff and travel happens I think get out of your comfort zone that's the whole point exactly you're going someplace to be someplace else not to be where you are uh and this also leads into my don't which is Don't be an asshole. Like the guy on the train. Like the guy on the train. It's Mm -hmm. not going to make anything better. It's literally just going to make it worse. And no one likes a fucking asshole. No one likes an asshole. A little kindness goes such a long way when traveling. And I've made some amazing friends over my years, you know, of traveling who I still am in contact with today. And, And those are the things you remember. So you can't do that if you're an asshole. You can't. And we would love to hear what your do's and don'ts are of travel. So definitely let us know on our Instagram what your do's and don'ts are if they differ from ours. Especially if they do listen to two girls in a great podcast on the road. Yes. So there you have it. Your shawinigans for this podcast episode. For today's episode, the wine that we are featuring is a Tassi 2020 Valpolicella from Verona, Italy. The price point for this wine is about $20. The ABV is 12%. And it's a basically a red blend of varietals from that region in Italy. 
So this wine is one that I selected for this episode because of a trip that I took in 2019 to uh, the Verona, Italy region for a wedding. And one of the fun things that we did as uh, my husband and I and our best friend Craig, we went on a wine tour of the Valpolicella uh, wine region. And it was supposed to be one of those group tours, and we were the only three that booked the tour that day. Ideal situation. It was perfect, because we paid the price for the bigger group, but we got an intimate wine-tasting experience with a really cool... Um, she was a female uh, winemaker who was our driver and our like tour guide. Oh, rad. So, obviously, the, w- the wineries that we went to were pre-sort of... Um, pre-prepared or pre-selected selected. Yeah. we didn't get to choose and we didn't we didn't know anything about it anyway uh, and so all the wineries that we went to on that trip were all like very small like family-run wineries that's right I feel like that's what you would have chosen anyway right absolutely I would have done that so and it was one of the very last big trips that we did before 2020 shut down and the before times in the before times so it's it's one of those just like it has a really like big space in my heart and in my in my mind for like the one of the last really fun trips that I took before COVID so that is why we are featuring a wine from Valpolicella in Verona Italy so I'm gonna hand it over to Drea who is going to do her usual very thorough um run through of all of the the facts that you need to know about not only this wine, but also the wine makers and the region. I'm hoping it's not quite as long as our last episode, but I'm going I'm to do my best. There's shockingly a long history of winemaking in Italy. Look at that. <laughs> we need to start picking places that have like no history in our episode. It's going to be like 25 minutes. Made so, this in done. my garage. Yeah. <laughs> so... This wine that we're drinking today, the Tossi, is actually a blend of three different grapes. So they're all local to this region. So there's the Corvina, the Rondinella, and the Corvinoni. Um, and these three, like I said, grow there in that area and are really utilized to make wines, especially lower production wines from this particular region. So Corvina is an Italian red grape most famous from Valpolicella. Did I get that? Valpolicella. Valpolicella. Better? Again, Better? everyone. Better? Jules is the, ling- the linguist. She the really universe. is. <laughs> everyone, everyone who knows me can attest to this uh, region. Corvina wines tend to be bright red, lighter in structure, and the most commonly cited characteristics tend to be notes of sour cherry, and a lack of color and tannin. So again, this is going to be a really light red wine, which is another reason why we selected it, because it really goes with sort of that summer weather. Um, in blends, Corvina's high level of acidity and distinctive herbaceousness are usually essential to the character of the wine. So you do see this one a lot in blends from the region, because what it lacks in color and tannin, it makes up for in acid and herbaceousness. Uh, these grapes also tend to ripen very late in the season, which can be an issue for growers, but thick skins means that Corvina lends itself well to air drying. And what they do there, it's a cool process, is the, the grapes are spread out on straw mats after picking so that they can develop the sugars while drying out in order to concentrate the flavors. This almost reminds me of how like coffee beans and 
are, are grown and then laid out to dry on like those racks. If you've ever been to a coffee bean farmer plantation, uh, I just, I never knew that that technique was used in winemaking, which is interesting. And we got to see that actually when we were, when we Ooh. did our tour. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my inner nerd is like me. <laughs> As an old world grape, uh, Corvina has dipped in and out of popularity in the last century, which is something that we've seen with a lot of these grapes, old world grapes, that um, their popularity sort of waxes and wanes, right? And excessive harvest and production contributed to the poor reputation of both the grape and the region through like the 1980s. This has really changed, though, in recent years, and I'm sure, Jules, you can attest to that with your tasting experience there. And producers are experimenting with grapes and using techniques like barrel aging and longer maceration times to really hone in their craft. And, as, and the result has been a welcome upsurge in the quality of these wines. Uh, Corvina is also grown in other places of the world, including Australia and Argentina, but Italy, of course, remains the largest producer of the grape. So the second grape in this brand is the Rondinella, and Rondinella is an Italian red grape variety that most commonly appears, again, in the blended wines from this region. While Corvina can be a little fussy, uh, this particular grape has a lot of attributes that make it super prolific and super reliable. So that's one of the reasons that they use it in a lot of these blends. Um, however, you don't see a lot of Rodinella on its own, and that's because it usually doesn't make super great wine by itself. Uh, again, it's all about the harmony of those blends. And then we have the last of the grapes, which is Corvinone. And this variety has long been considered to be a clone of Corvina and rarely appears without it in blends. However, here's some science. In 1993, genetic research showed that Corvignone was actually a separate variety. And further studies have asserted that it is not closely related to either Corvina or any other variety from that region. Uh, and so it has kept the name though, which essentially in Italian means big Corvina. And it's typically um, much bigger. And that's one of the reasons. It's a bigger grape, larger bunch sizes. So again, high yields that make it ideal for blending. Hmm, that's cool. Big grape. <laughs> big grape. Big grape. <laughs> There's got to be a wine out there just called the big grape. Oh, that would be fun. That'd be a cool I'd label. drink it. Uh, maybe it could come in a 40. You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The big grape. The big grape in a 40 and a paper bag. All right. So uh, that's a little bit about the grapes. And to kick us off, what are some fun facts that you discovered for this episode, Jules? Some of the fun facts about the producer of this wine, but also kind of the region um, in Val the Valpolicella region of Italy are um, Tassi, the maker of this wine, is a typical expression of that area, um, of the dialect of that area, and it basically is means shut up. <laughs> Which you know, I'm kind of like, I kind of like that because you know, when you're drinking wine, sometimes you're like, just shut up, let's just drink the wine. So, um, 
Tassi also uses herbal teas to recover and enhance the natural resistance of the vines to pathogens. Probably because of that whole phylloxera situation that happened. I also use herbal teas to fight off pathogens. Do you? That's interesting. <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit on that. Uh, this winery, speaking of vacation wines, this winery has its own, um, they call it Tenuta Lecave, and it's basically their own wine oasis resort where you can stay, eat, drink, and soak up the Italian sun. And they have this beautiful pool that overlooks the vineyards, and it just looks all so fabulous, and it really was making me want to take a vacation there. Soaking tubs in the rooms. I just really, <laughs> just wine and, yeah, yeah, into it. So check that out. When I was there for our little wine tour, we went by this huge, I mean, this massive production facility, which seemed really out of place in that region. And when I sort of like investigated what we were looking at, it was the Masi group. And I think probably if you go, if if you look at wine shelves and you look at Italian wines, you'll see a lot of Masi wines. They're one of the largest exporter in that region of wines to the US. But it was just this massive facility amongst all these very small sort of like family run vineyards. So it was kind of like a boo hiss situation. It's like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God we're not going there. That would have been really disappointing. Uh, and finally, our last fun fact is that the Valpolicella wine has several iterations. So it comes, so starting from the bottom to the top are sort of like the cheapest to the most expensive. It's uh, the Val, Valpolicella Classico, the Valpolicella Superiore, Valpolicella Ripasso, and then finally an Amarone. And I have to say that the Amarone was not my favorite wine. It was presented to us like a wine, but it was much more of a port style. Oh. It was it was kind of like that really um, heavy, you know, heavy mouthfeel, like a coats your mouth. It had that, that you know, this, that heaviness to it. Stickiness like a, port, a little bit. Stickiness, yeah. yeah. So, and it comes in a full, like a regular size bottle of wine. Oh. And it's really expensive, and so you think you're getting this really nice expensive bottle of wine, but then what you're really getting is kind of like their port-type wine. Is it sweet like a port? It's, never... It is a little bit sweet. So it's definitely one of those things, whenever I see an Amarone on a menu, and I've been out to dinner sometimes, and people are like, oh, we should get that. I'm like, absolutely not. That is not that is not the appropriate wine for what we're having for dinner, because it's, it's way too much. Well, that seems like a lot. It was a lot. So anyway, so those are your fun facts about um, the Val Valpolicella region and for our winemaker Tassi today. Now that we've had some fun facts with Jules, let's talk a little bit more about the region itself. So Valpolicella, did I do better? Yes, did I do better? So good. Thank you. Uh, is probably the most famous red wine district in northeastern Italy's Veneto wine region. And the viticultural area spans a considerable chunk of western Veneto, stretching from north into the hills above Verona for approximately 10 miles or so, and east to west for more than twice that distance. So it's a pretty large viticultural area. The hills here rise to more than 600 meters or 2,000 feet. Um, 
into the fresh subalpine air and this creates a patchwork of aspects facing in every direction so when we talk about vines that are facing like easterly or westerly or sun side or shade side or sloped or whatever you're getting the full gamut in this region so it's mm. a really diverse area for growing which means that there's a lot of possibilities and that's going to be fairly unique too yeah i would say so well and also just like great conditions right because mm -hmm. you can grow all sorts of stuff so the Valpoichella production area really ballooned and comes into its own in the 1960s when it was granted the doc status resulting in a dramatic seesaw of quality and quantity which lasted for about 40 years so doc um is what is what is the designation that is the main tier of Italian wine classification and covers almost every traditional Italian wine style. There are around 330 individual DOC titles, each with a set of laws govern governing its viticultural zone and permitted grape varieties and wine styles. So this is the major classification system in Italy that's used throughout Italy um, and those which show consistently high quality get promoted to, to a DOCG status. And uh, the G stands for what? Girl, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's guaranteed. It's a guarantee. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, so okay. it's denominazione de origine controllata garantizado. Like guaranteed. Guaranteed. So the Stamp. DOC is a good label, right. like and then the DOCG is the a little higher, extra. Yeah. yeah, higher standards. So I knew, I knew that there was standards, but I didn't know that that was that stood for guaranteed. So that's an well, if you would have done your research, I know. No, well, you know, she was on vacation, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then before that, she had COVID. Yep, times guaranteed time, origin. Times are hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyday wine from this region, whether guaranteed or not, <laughs> tends to be bright, tangy, fruity, uh, with aromas of blueberries, bananas, and sour cherry notes. Mm. And I find that combination really interesting. And I, full disclosure, I don't drink a ton of Italian wine. Shocking, I know, based on this research. <laughs> this woman likes her California wines, people, and her Spanish wines. Mostly Spanish wines, Portuguese wines, a lot of California wines, Greek wines, some Cal Central Coast wines, Mexican wines, Mexican wines. No. Okay, I take it back. She doesn't just like California wines. She does like a lot of wines. <laughs> fine. I mean, I'm also willing to learn. I like new favorites. That's, That's fine. Uh, <clears throat> and so one of, because of these different notes, what's interesting about this wine and what I thought we could do a little experiment during our tasting is it can be enjoyed at room temperature or slightly chilled. Good thing I have it in my wine fridge. Fantastic. It's not because right now room temperature people in well, my house nope. it's about 80 degrees. So we do not want to be drinking room temperature. I think room temperature wine is like in the 70 degree range. It would be like yeah. what room temperature would be. Whereas a wine fridge brings it down to like the 60s, I think. Yep. Yeah. So it's not chilled like in the fridge, but it's chilled down from room temperature. Right. You wouldn't chill it like you would a Lambrusco. Oh, I love a Lambrusco. We should do a Lambrusco on the show. Foreshadowing. Done. We have a lot of things we want to do. So <laughs> y'all, you guys, seriously, just be subscribing, be listening so we can continue to do this and maybe get a sponsor. Or a free bottle of wine. 
Or just, yeah, or just a free fucking bottle of wine would be great. A high five. Yeah, so FYI, people, Dre and I buy every bottle of wine. We, we are do. not given wine. We are not gifted the wine. We We do this out of the wines. goodness of our hearts yeah, for we, you. We choose our wines based on, like, the fact that we want to share the wine with you, not because we are being compelled to share the wine. But I could be compelled is, is well, what we're saying. I mean, yes, we are absolutely saying that we can be bought. <laughs> By inappropriate wine. <laughs> Let's talk about the winemaker and the winery that we are trying today, which is Tassi. I found this is where I really get into the research more. Um, and Tassi has a really interesting story, like so many of the small production wineries that we've covered in the past. So the winery sits on an old limestone quarry, which is located in, on the top of a hill on the northern part of the Val di Ilasi in Verona. Sounds good. Sounds good, right? Mm -hmm. The quarry was abandoned in the 1970s, and it was converted by Tossi to make a unique winery and vineyard experience. So for them, it was always about the two things together. It was about growing the grapes, but also having this place where people could go to really experience the culture and the terroir represented in the wine. Side note, I think it's interesting that Drea pronounces it query and I pronounce it quarry. Oh. Listeners, how do you pronounce the word Q-U-A-R-R-Y? Query or quarry? Okay, back to the podcast, everyone. Polls will close <laughs> 24 hours after release. <laughs> As I was saying, uh, the, the history then of the space goes back quite some time. So in 1922, Le Cave opens. And this is a quarry to extract <laughs> limestone <laughs> for uh, a factory in... Trignago. And in 1963, which is a cement factory. And in 1963, the cement factory, um, which was really the most important of the valley at that time, it was a huge pinpoint of industry in this area, was closed down. And in 1975, Lacave ceased production as well. It's not until 2003 that the authorities in that area to start start to look at that land for a new purpose and they decide that they want to convert the site into a landfill designed to hold hazardous waste material Ugh. so as you can imagine this doesn't go over very well um and it just so happens you know happenstance that that same year tossy the 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 wine label starts planting vineyards on the southern border of the Lacave site. Then there's a break. Also known as a quarry. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> In 2004, there's a breakthrough following the opposition of 49 uh, civil societies, organizations, various protests, which involve thousands of members of the local communities and the dump project is dismissed. This really paved the way for Tossi, and in 2006, they began clearing the land, planting new vineyards beyond that southern border where they had originally started growing their vines, and 
renovating the old and abandoned buildings that were already on the property. In 2012, Tossie is formally founded and starts producing wines from this area. And in 2013, after 10 years from the initial work on the site, they finally open their doors. And that includes the winery, the tasting room, and the their organic farm. And the hotel. And the hotel. And the yes. oasis. The oasis. That we all want to go visit now. So the old industrial buildings have been converted into rooms and suites, a restaurant with breathtaking views over the valley, a wine shop that offers tasting and tours every day, and a spa. They sigh. <laughs> I mean, this really does sound like the ideal vacation destination. It really sounds amazing. I kind of wish I would have known about this when I was there. Redo. Redo. I kind of want to redo. <laughs> it was also hot as fucking Hades. Oh, uh, we because you were there in the summer, right? In July. Ooh. It Ooh. was, I don't Ooh. think I've ever sweated so much. It was so hot. Yeah, go in like November. But it was still awesome. <laughs> still had, the, had a great time, so it's fine. First world problems and all that. You get to travel to Italy and it's hot. Boo-hoo. So sad. <laughs> so sad. Drea, tell us a little bit about the winemakers that are um, producing this wine for us. So the winemakers are actually three friends who decided to make honest wines that really reflect the region that they're from. And they are Michelle, Matteo, and Mattia. And this is their philosophy that we pulled from their website. Quote, we love good wine, the natural products of this beautiful wild land, and the idea of bringing them to the world. We don't like pesticides. <laughs> Doctrine that is an end in itself and people who take themselves too seriously. These are our kind of people. Yeah, this really resonated yeah. with me when I was doing this research. Like they just, you know, wine, this idea of wine for the people and making good juice for good times is something that uh, I think that we don't see enough of in the industry. And mm -hmm. I love it when we're able to find these producers who really get that. And that's really reflected, this philosophy is really reflected in their production style. So they do natural farming practices. They operate under the core principles of biodynamic farming and approach the vineyard as an ecosystem. And as part of this, they're really committed to promoting biodiversity by keeping vast areas of woods all around the vineyards. They raise animals, they integrate other crops. So when I talked a little while ago about an actual working farm it really is that it's mm -hmm. not just a vineyard it's all the other pieces of that sustainable ecosystem that go along with it now that we have all the nitty-gritty facts about the grapes and the vineyards and the winemaker i'm going to talk a little bit more about what we are going to be tasting in this bottle so this wine comes from hillside vineyards that live at an altitude of 450 meters and are located at the gateway of the Licinia Natural Park. This terroir is, um, has indigenous vines that express themselves naturally, which gives the wine, the wines, this wine and other wines that they produce, a really unique identity. The process by which they um, make this wine is that the grapes are hand-selected and harvested at the end of September. The fermentation on um, indigenous yeasts takes place in stainless steel tanks 
Then the wine is aged in large concrete tanks for six months and remains in the bottle for three more months. So that's something that we're definitely going to be looking for when we taste the wine Mm -hmm. is can we taste the fact that it's been in stainless steel tanks and also in concrete tanks for a little bit of time. I think that's something that's a little bit unique to this. And that's not barrel aged too. I mean, I think that's going to give it its own unique character Mm -hmm. and really make it more of a summer red. Yeah, lighter bodied, something that you can definitely sip on a patio in the sun. Under the Tuscan sun, but we're not in Tuscany. So there you have it. Um, So the result of all of this is a valve policella with a vibrant ruby color, aromas of red cherry, berries, and light herbal notes. On the palate, the wine is juicy, fresh, and delicate. But Dre and I will be the judges of all of that. Dun, dun, dun. For our tasting discussion, we'll start where we always do with color. So remember this. It's red. (laughs) (laughs) Is now a good time to mention that we've already taken down a bottle of rosé? We don't talk about these things. We don't talk about Bruno? No, no, no. Captain Obvious, (laughs) aka Jules, it's red. But, so, according to the tasting notes and the varietals, it's supposed to be a lighter red. I like this is a ruby red to me. Absolutely. It is. If you hold it up to the light versus we're kind of in a dark room right now, but if I hold it up to the window and I'm getting a little bit of sunlight, it's got that beautiful ruby color. It so does. you can see through it. It's not like a Zinfandel or a cab where it's matte or opaque where you can't see through it. Like you can really see through this wine. It does really look like a ruby. And from the if you look from the top of the glass down, it has almost a, a little bit of a rusty red color. And it is translucent, though, to your point. Like, I mm-hmm. can see my hand through oh, the bottom clearly. of the glass. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that's just the wine talking. Could be. Impossible to say. Okay, so as you're taking a chug over there, how's that nose coming down? <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you getting on the nose? You go first. <laughs> this is some fucking cheating right here. Dre is better at this than I am. So, definitely getting that cherry, those sour cherry notes, and that herbaceousness. Like, those two things come across so clear. I'm not getting the cherry, but I am, okay, I was trying to put my finger on what I, that's what I was like, you go first. I was, what am I getting? It's that herbaceousness. It's not quite oregano, like. Yep, oregano. I'm just going to say oregano, thyme, rosemary, a little bit of tarragon too. There's a little bit tarragon, of that like licorice. That's one. I'm not getting. I'm not getting the thyme or the rosemary, but I'm getting. It is a little bit of that like licorice-y, like very potent fennel-y almost. Yes. Well, and I think too the other that corresponds with the other note that I'm getting, which is a little. It's a little peppery on the nose. Okay. A little bit of black pepper, I think. I was going to say white pepper, but it's because, you know, I think colonialism. I think you're just being (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're right. It is because of colonialism. Fuck. We haven't mentioned Uh, that once in this one, so we got to throw it at this Don't worry. I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. Okay. Taste. All right. Let's take a, let's take a sip. Like we haven't already, but you know. I will say the very first sip I took of this, I was like, whoa, pepper. I mean, black pepper all the way. Yeah. 
And I know I just said white pepper for the nose, but this is like a spicy, but not in a heat kind of way. We're nothing if not specific on this podcast. (laughs) We also want you to interpret the wine and however you want to interpret it and not just be beholden to like what we see and smell and taste. Well, I think that's what's great about wine too, right? It's so referential. It's all about Mm -hmm. what your palate knows and expects. Um, See, I definitely, like, I get the pepper, but then those herbs kick in almost immediately. so good. And um, it, the finish are those fruit notes. So the, the, and we're talking like. But not sweet fruit, though. No. It's not sweet at all. This is such a great late afternoon, like, golden hour red wine. Yeah. When it's a hot day and you're like, do I really want red wine? This is really This is what you want. This is what you want. Because it's, it's. A little bit cooling in nature because of the heat that it has a little bit with, like, the, the herbs and the spices that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it can hold up to some pretty bold food, too, I think. Yeah. And the, that finish is, you know, it softens out with, I think, with the sour cherry, raspberry, um, early summer blueberry, things that are going to be, fruits that are going to be a bit more tart on that back mm-hmm. end but still really you know gives it a nice refreshing quality to the wine yeah i'm a fan big fan let's talk about food because we love food we do love food uh so jules i take it based on our notes you want me to go first with my parents <laughs> <laughs> basically i'm just saying whatever drea says is going to be a great pairing so the to your point this is definitely like it's what I love about this wine is you can drink it alone on a sunny, you know, golden hour afternoon, mm-hmm. but it would 100% stand up to some pretty hearty food. Such as? This is something I would love to pair with some sort of wild game. So wild boar, ven- grilled venison, I think would be amazing with this wine. Something that's going to have kind of that more gamey, woodsy characteristic to it in terms of a, a protein. This is also something which, like, I would pair with a spicy red sauce mm-hmm. and pasta. I just think that would be a delightful pairing. And to that point, I would also drink this with Thai food. Like, something that had, like, a nice little spicy kick to a it. A noodle, like yeah. a noodle dish. Like a spicy pad thai mm-hmm. or something. With some veggies, yep. Like For I sure. said, whatever Drea says... <laughs> Or also, I am thinking about my time in this region and what we were eating with these wines. And that really, I know we talk about charcuterie boards a lot on this podcast, but really well, there's like a reason for that. Some They're good, fucking good. Salty meats, a hard cheese. And I'm not a cheese eater, as everyone knows communist, foreigner, whatever you want to call me. Not a big cheese eater, but a hard cheese, I'm here for. Um, but also like a buttery cracker that has that really good snap to it. And then olive oil from the vineyard of whatever the wine is that you're drinking. Cause they all have their own olive oil there. So that's what I would be eating. Yeah. And then also I'd be eating all the things that Drea mentioned. I love a salty meat too. I could go for that for Basically, sure. Basically I, I would eat a buffet. <laughs> We're going to have with a buffet. This wine. We're going to have a buffet. <laughs> Two girls in a grape, the buffet opening soon. <laughs> okay, so what what is your situation? How are you enjoying this wine? So I feel like it's I, I can't really go 
somewhere other than where I experienced this wine in the first in the first place, right? So Calgon, take me away. I'm sitting on a sunny patio overlooking the vineyards at one of the wineries here um, in this region and just really enjoying the company, enjoying the wine, enjoying the views, enjoying the food, um, and just really being so happy to be somewhere different and exploring a new place and you know to our point of like just getting out and traveling and being open to possibilities and just having that full 360 experience of the wine i love that beat that i can't go so mine is much more basic (laughs) (laughs) i much like mine usually are (laughs) i just really want to enjoy this on a summer night i want to put on some 1940s mambo i want to chill the fuck out outdoors Maybe light a fire uh, once that sun goes down. Yeah, I just Mm -hmm. want... This is a wine... Because it can hold up to either one of those situations where you're you're on a sunny patio or you're sitting by a fire. Exactly. Where you're not cold, but it's just there's that little nip in the air that you want to put on a light sweater and sit by the fire and enjoy that atmosphere. Right, and as we mentioned earlier, this is a wine that you can serve chilled or at room temperature. So this is... Our bottle has been in a wine fridge... At about 60 degrees. We've left it out, though, so our next pour, it'll be a little warmed up. And I personally love wines like that. And I love to savor them because they change and develop and make you think as you work your way through the bottle. So, yeah, I want to work my way through the bottle with some 1940s Mambo. I can maybe make that happen with a record player. Here we go. We might have to go through the record collection. What are you being entertained by, other than 1940s Mambo, which is entertainment? Well, as we all know, I'm a big dork. She likes to read, everyone. I love to read. Push the glasses up the nose. And in my undergrad days, I had a specialty in pre-1600 literature. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) And so... My undergrad days were, my specialty was going to the bar. (laughs) And I must have not really, guys. I actually was a little bit of a nerd too. (laughs) I was not a party girl. (laughs) I um, I ended up taking like six or seven Shakespeare classes. Love Shakespeare. So I mean, two gentlemen from Verona. What could be more appropriate? That is so appropriate, right? And what are you being entertained by? Going back to that trip, we went to the opera in Verona, mm. which is world famous, Love and we um, saw Aida. Ugh. And it just was fabulous and mind-blowing and entertaining and awesome, and it we drank a lot of wine. <laughs> As one does. To, you know, you... They literally, the the guys, like, you go to a baseball game here in the U.S., and the guys are like, oh, Bud Light, lemonade. There, they're like, we have good wine. <laughs> yep, we'll take two bottles of that. And we'll drink it out of a plastic cup, and we will be so happy. So, yeah, so I'm at the Verona Opera enjoying some of this wine on a really warm evening in July 2019 in Verona, Italy. In the before times. In the before times. And really living my best Romeo and Juliet life. I love that. Was Rob there? Rob was there. <laughs> in fair Verona, he was. Was he Romeo? Mm, not quite. <laughs> He'll get there. He'll get so there. there you have it. 
that is our tasting for our wine this week, which is the Tassi Valpolicella from 2020. And Jules, where can people find this bottle if they are so inclined or a bottle similar? We found this wine at a local wine shop here in San Diego called Vina Carta, which I think we've mentioned before on the podcast. It's a great little wine shop in the Little Italy neighborhood of San Diego. We love them there. Shout out to Vina Carta. Thank you so much for carrying amazing wine. Um, but if you are not locally in San Diego, which I know hundreds of you are not, uh, wine Searcher is going to be your best friend to find a bottle of this wine or something similar. And the good news is, is that wines from this region are actually pretty popular. Yes, they so are. So you'll yeah. be, if, even if you can't find this particular one, the Tossie, you can find a wine in this style or using the three varietals that we've covered in this episode. So speaking of episodes, we are looking towards the end of summer in August. And you know what that means? That means everyone goes back to school. Back to school, baby! Rodney Dangerfield, watch the movie. So good. (laughs) So in the spirit of going back to school, we will be doing an arc of episodes centered around wines from the places we went to school. Which might be challenging because Drea went (laughs) to Berkeley undergrad, which is in fucking California. Jules went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which is in the middle of fucking nowhere, Illinois. So Girl, they make wine this, everywhere now. They make this wine. is going to be challenging. So Jules, climate change has been good to you in Jules the Midwest. May end up picking something that she drank in college. Oh, because that's going to be better. Uh, hello, Boone's Farm. Foreshadowing, everybody. <laughs> Shout out to the Boone's Farm. But anyway, so that's, that's what we have up our sleeves. Look forward to that for our August arc and. The best way you can get in touch with us is to follow us on Instagram at Two Girls in a Great Pod. That's T W O Girls in a Great Pod. Uh, that's also our Gmail address, Two Girls in a Great Pod. Slide into those DMs. Give us your recommendations. Tell us what you were drinking in college. Tell us what you were drinking the last time you were in Italy. And if you want to continue to support our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. We would very much appreciate it. And, and share our podcast with your friends yeah. who like to drink wine. Have a podcast Sharing party. is caring, everyone. That's right. And until next time. Salud. Salud.